This is Michael Oshelink, and I'm speaking with Dan Grazier. He is a Jack Shanahan Military Fellow for the Center for Defense Information at Strauss Military Reform Project, a project on the project of the Project on Government Oversight. Good to see you, Dan. Hey, it's good to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you back. So you have a new report, and I uh, must let folks know that this is a continuation of reports that you've done, uh, highly critical of the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter. The title of this report is Uncorrected Design Flaws, Cyber Vulnerability, and Unreliable, Unreliability Plague, the F-35 Program. And I just want to highlight four, at least four, of the Director of Operational Tests and Evaluations reports, uh, the lowlights, at least four of them, and then have you kind of do a deep dive into them and the continuing problems we face with the F-35. One, and just to point out that there are three variants for this, for this platform. The gun for the Air Force's version not only can't shoot straight, but breaks the aircraft when fired. That's one low light. The second one is there has been no appreciable improvements in the program's overall reliability since 2016. We're now in 2020. Number three, the entire F-35 system remains vulnerable to cyber threats. And number four, the simulation facility necessary to fully test the aircraft and train pilots remains unfinished. Wow, Dan, tell us more about the F-35 and why us taxpayers should be concerned. And just as important, you know, our military who, who relies on these platforms to, to do their jobs. Right, so that's uh, quite the list of, uh, of issues that, that remain with the program. Uh, it, it's important, so we're, we're here talking about this in, in March of, of 2020. Uh, this program is nearly 20 years old now. Uh, the, the contract, the development contract was awarded to Lockheed Martin in October of 2001. So this has been going on for a very, very long time. And it's, it's still not over the hump. Like it, 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 it's still in testing. Uh, there has not been a full rate production decision on this program. So uh, the program still has, still has a ways to go uh, in, in the whole, in this whole process. And so, and it's, and there are problems with the aircraft that are essentially unsolvable at this point, it seems. So the, the first one that, that you raised about the, about the gun and the F-35A, <clears throat> those problems are in the, in the past, it's just been reported that, that the program or that the, that the aircraft couldn't shoot straight. Well, that problem remains obviously a pretty big problem for a, for a fighter plane, a uh, fighter plane that can't shoot straight. But this year we find out that not only can the aircraft not shoot straight, but when the pilot fires the, fires the cannon, he actually breaks the aircraft. And, and not in a small way either. So, and the way this was originally reported was that it was just uh, chipping off flakes of the skin uh, around, around the, the gun's muzzle. But when you read deeper in the report, you find out that it's actually cracking structural members inside the aircraft. And so the, the issues here go far beyond uh, just accuracy, which is a problem that they can't solve either. 
um, but it's actually damaging the aircraft. And the problem is so bad that the, that the Air Force has issued directives to all of its pilots not to fire the aircraft, uh, not to fire the gun in training. So, and there, there was a, an odd provision in the DOT report that said that the Air Force was restricting the, the gun to combat use, which in and of itself is a really odd thing because if the pilots can't train with it, how are they to be expected to employ it properly in combat? So and, and let me point out too, it's important that for the few people who have not been tracking the F-35 and the boondoggle that it is, we're not talking about an aircraft that is going through a testing phase for eventual production. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, the the program, the F-35 program has been in production for more than a decade now. And it, it's hard to, on any on any one day to get a good snapshot of exactly how many aircraft have been produced. Um, but it's, it's uh, we're, we're essentially contracted now uh, out beyond 500 aircraft. So uh, the last solid numbers that I saw, there were approximately 430 aircraft uh, that have already been built. And uh, with, you know, several hundred more uh, in the pipeline for production. And and what, what that really means, and that's, that's concurrency in, in Pentagon speak, uh, the concurrency being the overlap between production or between design and production. So we're producing aircraft based on older designs uh, that don't incorporate all of the design flaws that are identified or that don't account for all the design flaws that have been identified in testing. So as, they, as the services and as the testing uh, teams continue to fly the F-35, they continue need to, to find more design flaws. Um, but when we, when we talk about concurrency, all of these design flaws are built into the aircraft that are rolling off the assembly line. And so what's going to have to happen down the road is all those aircraft that were built that incorporate all these design flaws are going to have to go back uh, to probably the manufacturer to get all of the, the corrections done. So uh, any purported savings, you, you hear a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of triumphant proclamations out of the Pentagon about the, the cost coming down on the F-35. Well, those savings are going to be erased uh, very quickly once the, these aircraft have to go back and, uh, and we have to retrofit all of these design corrections uh, into the already produced aircraft. So uh, it's, a much, much, uh, uh, it's a much less risky proposition to complete the design process completely, uh, test them, identify any design flaws, come up with the proper fixes, and then move into production. Uh, that way we save this big giant step of going back and, and, and fixing our mistakes that uh, were baked into uh, now hundreds of aircraft. So <clears throat> I mentioned there's four low lights as opposed to highlights. You talked about one, the, the gun that can't shoot straight, and not only when it does, can't shoot straight, but when it does shoot, it causes damage to the aircraft. The, the second one was since 2016, there's been no improvements in the program's reliability. Now, that's four years ago. Why have there been any improvements in four years? Well, so the, the, the first kind of, Short, easy answer of it is it's a very complicated aircraft. Has uh, not just a lot of moving parts in the in the aircraft itself, but in the entire enterprise. So, and we we see this with um, you see this with the F twenty two as well. You know, very high tech, very uh, you know, cutting edge technology aircraft. They are very difficult to maintain. 
And so uh, you almost have to expect to see low readiness rates just because we we continue to build these, uh, you know, design and, and build these really complex aircraft. Uh, so it's, it's doubtful whether the F-35 is ever going to have uh, the reliability figures that you see on, on simpler aircraft, aircraft like the F-16, the A-10, uh, aircraft like that, uh, just because we do build them um, uh, with such a degree of complexity that that, that becomes almost impossible. Uh, one of the biggest drivers for the low reliability numbers for the uh, for the F thirty five program so far has been, um, you know, beyond that has been uh, supply issues. Uh, if you look, there's the the metrics for reliability in these programs are broken down into a couple different categories. Uh, you know, non mission capable for maintenance, um, complex design, uh, and then not mission capable for supply. Uh, that means that as something does break on the aircraft. Um, the the squadron the unit does not have the the spare parts on hand uh, to readily fix it, and so you know, these are this is an issue that that uh, that will likely be able to be fixed later on. Uh, it's going to cost a lot of money to be able to um, to to get all the necessary spare parts uh, in a in a really timely manner. Uh, I don't know that that supply chain has been fully. Uh, fully developed at this point, um, but but even that it kind of shows that uh, it's not necessarily the best idea to be flooding the market with a bunch of F thirty fives that the that the manufacturing base can't can't support um, because really what's the point in having an aircraft that can't fly and can't perform its missions? And and before we move on to the next vulnerability, which is cyber, I want to remind our viewing and listening audience, according to our friends at the Taxpayers for Common Sense, we're talking about over $1.5 trillion for the program when all said and done. Is that accurate? Right. Yep, that is accurate. When you factor in uh, now more than $400 billion in development and acquisition costs, and then uh, the, the anticipated cost to sustain that, uh, to sustain the program out to uh, about 2070 now, um, uh, which is the expected lifespan of the, of the F-35 program. Uh, yeah, $1.5 trillion. So the most expensive weapons program in history. And considering I've heard rumblings now about the sixth generation, which is going to replace it anyways and make it obsolete, but we'll save that for another conversation, perhaps. Right. So let's, the yeah. fourth low light was its uh, cyber vulnerabilities. Can you speak right. about that? Yeah. So I, this is this is one that hasn't gotten as much uh, as much attention as as I think it should, uh, because you there's a a lot of discussion about the, the supposed amazing capabilities of the F-35, uh, you know, when they finally do get it up and running, everything that it's going to be able to do and, and how it's going to be, it's going to be peerless in the air. Well, uh, whether or not that turns out to be the case down the road you know, remains to be seen. But I think the, uh, a, a smart enemy who has to, who has to go up against the United States with the F-35 uh, isn't going to try to, try to defeat the F-35 in the air. And I think that the, the means of its defeat is already built in with, uh, because it's such, an, it's such an integrated system. Uh, you can't really talk about the, the F-35 by itself because uh, the F-35 is a highly networked 
uh, system of systems, basically. So just in the aircraft, it's, uh, they talk about the sensor fusion, about how the radar and the electronic warfare and all the weapon systems and, and uh, uh, the electrical optical sighting system, uh, you know, the distributed aperture system, all those different, all those different components and mission systems that are built into the aircraft, those are all networked together. Uh, but then all of those are supposed to be networked together across an entire flight of, of F-35. So whether you have a four-ship flight, an eight-ship flight, uh, all of these aircraft are supposed to be uh, talking and communicating together. So sharing information across, across the network. And then you add on to that the, the fact that when you land the aircraft, then you have to plug it into right now into the autonomic logistics information system. So that's the worldwide network uh, for, uh, for maintenance, for logistics, for supply chain management, uh, for maintenance, the, the whole deal. And so this is a, it's a highly networked thing. So uh, it's, it's very important to, to make sure that that, that whole network is, is secure, which is a really difficult proposition when you're talking about so many components spread across, uh, all the way across the globe now. Um, and, and if you corrupt, you know, you introduce some malware in one part of the network, then as these things all plug together, then that malware can spread and corrupt the whole network. And we've, and we've seen in, in past reports about how, uh, faulty maintenance codes, uh, on an aircraft, uh, or in the, in the Alice network, uh, can, can shut down an aircraft and prevent the, and, and prevent it from starting up. Basically, you need to have a, a maintenance chief come out and, and override the, the system to, to start up the aircraft. Well, you know, imagine a future scenario, uh, where somebody launches an attack on the United States and they don't want to deal with the F-35. It's, it's possible that they can introduce a, a cyber attack on that whole network and brick the fleet, basically. You know, you, uh, if you, you get a faulty maintenance code uh, that spreads across the network and you have to have somebody come out and essentially jumpstart the aircraft, uh, that right there, you've just defeated the F-35 without firing a missile. So... It's it's very important, and and DOT and E has has said repeatedly that cyber testing on this program is not where it should be. And I, and I want to monitor viewing the listening audience. I believe it was two interviews ago that you and I had this discussion, not specific to the F thirty five, but the complexity of the battle space and the ease of which a adversary can use uh, cyber attacks to shut down communication or or various aspects of of, of the system. This just adds to that complexity. And I can't imagine that the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Iranians, you know, other actors in this, in this space aren't already trying to figure out how to do exactly what you just suggested. Right. And we know that, that the, the, the F-35 program has been the target of cyber attacks before. Back in, if I remember correctly, 2006, uh, it was suspected that the Chinese had broken into, uh, into one of the subcontractors' uh, computer network and downloaded all the plans for the F-35. So if they can penetrate the program that way, you can almost guarantee that they've been able to penetrate the, uh, the program in other ways too. And I want to point out one of the things that Lockheed Martin did really intelligently in order to make it difficult for people like you to have Congress have provided real oversight is to spread the production 
domestically, you know, across all the states, and then obviously internationally too, because we have a lot of partners too. And just imagine that, how vulnerable any one of those partners would be to what we were referring to. You're talking about, you know, hundreds and thousands of individuals working for dozens and dozens of companies, anyone which could be entry point for a foreign or domestic actor to cause havoc for this whole system. Right, exactly. So uh, potentially any one of those components that, um, you know, they can, they can install some, some firmware, uh, in, they can corrupt some firmware in it. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting situation that we've uh, that we've built for ourselves. This is one of the reasons that, just in a big picture, uh, general sense, uh, I I always advocate you want to build the simplest in, in military terms. You want to build the simplest possible tool uh, to accomplish the the intended purpose. Uh, and and generally, if you uh, if something unless something absolutely has to touch the network, then it probably shouldn't. Uh, so I, I advocate for what I call cyber proofing uh, rather than, rather than cybersecurity. Uh, and, and that's basically, Hey, look, let's, let's really take a look and at, at all of our, uh, at all, all the equipment that we're buying. And if it does not need to touch the network, then it shouldn't touch the network. Amen. <laughs> so the fourth low light, that is, is discussed um, is a simulation facility that is necessary right. for testing and training the pilots is unfinished. First of all, can you explain what the simulation facility is and why the hell it's not ready? Sure. So that in and of itself is a very long, uh, very long, sad tale. Um, so the, the simulation facility that we're talking about right now is called the Joint Simulation Environment. Uh, it's a system that's being developed by NAVAIR down at Patuxent River, at least the first one is. Uh, there's supposed to be others built uh, like Edwards Air Force Base and a couple other places. Um, and what it is, it's, it's not... It's, it, it's not a flight simulator like most people think it is. Um, what this is supposed to be is a uh, fully validated and verified simulator, which means that um, it's not the, the simulation uh, software uh, is, is not just what the, uh, what the aircraft is supposed to do because uh, it's, it's pretty easy, pretty straightforward to, uh, to develop simulation software based on the brochure specs. Like, hey, this is what we say the aircraft can do. Uh, what the joint, simulated, uh, joint simulation environment is supposed to be, it's supposed to uh, take data that has been gathered during real world flights uh, and, uh, and then incorporate all of the, um, the, the real world performance, uh, you know, warts and all. So if, uh, if the radar has a, for lack of a better term, a blind spot, uh, then that's supposed to be incorporated into uh, into the simulation software, and and it's that verification part uh, of the of the software that has not been completed yet. So the the facility itself is built, and and from from what I understand, it's a uh, it, it's a really beautiful uh, simulation facility. That's the easy part, um, and it's the it's verifying the software to make sure that it truly represents the aircraft's performance that that hasn't been done yet. Now, your audience will be interested to know, probably not surprised to find out that uh, this program, uh, that this part of the program is uh, behind schedule by many, many years. Uh, and, the, and the joint simulation environment is actually not the original, um, uh, the original simulation facility. Uh, the originally going all the way back to 2001, 
the everybody involved in the program knew that they were never going to be able to test all the the high end capabilities with with multiple aircraft all sharing uh, all sharing data um, and and in a in a realistic environment They're, they weren't going to be able to test all of that in in the the test ranges out in California and off the coast uh, uh, over the Pacific uh, just because they couldn't. Um, it was impossible to be able to to put all the the necessary radar simulator emulators uh, around the test ranges, and the and the ranges aren't big enough to be able to support uh, big flights of multiple aircraft. And so they were going to have to test some of these high end capabilities of the F thirty five in a simulated environment. So it was anticipated all the way back to the beginning, and it was it was decided back then that Lockheed Martin was going to build uh, what was called the verification simulator. And that was part of the original contract, uh, and um, and that was that was a that was a key thing. They were supposed to be developing the simulation facility uh, parallel to the uh, uh, to the aircraft, and they didn't do it. And that the VSIM program fell farther and farther behind. And you can track its progression through DOTD reports uh, about how it's uh, about how the VSIM wasn't uh, wasn't living up. Uh, to what it was supposed to do and about how uh, successful completion of the initial operational test and evaluation process was in danger because this VSIM facility wasn't, uh, wasn't up to where it needed to be. And so finally, I think it was in 2016, the, the decision was made to take the program away from Lockheed Martin and to give it to the Navy. So NAVAIR said that, hey, we can do this. And so they started, they started building this, building this facility because Lockheed Martin had dragged their feet uh, and hadn't, hadn't produced what they were supposed to produce. And so, you know, we already paid Lockheed Martin to build that VSIM facility. And now all of a sudden we have to pay, pay the Navy uh, to, to do the same thing. And oh, by the way, the Navy couldn't do this on their own. Uh, so they had to contract with Lockheed Martin uh, to build the uh, to build the the JSE to build the joint simulation environment. So Lockheed Martin's getting paid twice to uh, to do the same job, basically. Quick question on that one. So I do remember that Senator McCain, obviously no longer with us, was a fierce critic of the F thirty five. With what you just talked about in terms of Lockheed Martin double dipping, is there anyone in Congress who's interested in this, curious about this, investigating this, having oversight hearings, anything like that? So there, there are people on, on Capitol Hill who have been, uh, who have been critical of the program. Um, and there's plenty of staffers that, uh, uh, that are, that are very frustrated with, with all of this. Um, and, and rightly so. And so they, they like, they they do their best to, uh, to raise these issues, but, Going back to what you said earlier, the F-35 program has, uh, or the Pentagon and the defense industry has perfected the art of political engineering. Uh, so they have absolutely uh, uh, flooded the, uh, flooded the entire United States with subcontractors. And so uh, it's, it's built in at least 45 different states. Uh, we think somewhere around 350 different congressional districts. So it's, it's really difficult. Uh, it, it's, it's easy to be, to be critical of the F-35 program and to raise issues during, during hearings, um, but it's very different. Uh, it's a very different proposition to actually cast votes against it. Uh, so that's, that's, the, that's the problem 
uh, right there. And that's by design. Uh, this is, that's the, that's, yeah. that's why, um, why political engineering happens. It's to, um, make these, make these programs politically bulletproof. Um, because no, no member of Congress wants to have to, um, uh, answer questions about this during an election. Uh, if they cast a vote against the F-35, uh, and let's say they have a thousand, uh, there, there's a thousand people who, who derive some part of their income uh, from that. Well, every person uh, that derives even a part of their income from the F-35, even though maybe they only work on it for a year or for an hour out of the year, um, the, the defense industry counts that as a job. Yeah. And so when if a member of Congress votes against the F-35, then their opponent in the next election is going to say, uh, so-and-so um, you know, didn't, didn't fight for jobs or voted against jobs in our district. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fight for jobs in, in our district. And, and so that's, uh, that's a fundamental problem that we have with the military industrial congressional complex. Um, and it's, uh, it's one that's really difficult to overcome. Crony capitalism almost at its worst. Absolutely. It's the worst example of it. The the name of your report is Uncorrected Design Flaws, Cyber Vulnerabilities, and the Unreliability Plague, the F-35 program. Where can people find that particular report? And as I mentioned, you've had other reports. So where can they find the totality of your reports on the F-35? But you also provide oversight for other programs as well. Right. Uh, you can just come to our, uh, come to our website at, uh, P-O-G-O dot, uh, dot org. Uh, you can, you can search my name right now. Uh, this, this current report is, uh, I, I just looked, it's at the, uh, the top of the homepage. Uh, so if you click on that, you can click on my name and, and you can go back through my entire corpus. Uh, there's, a. Uh, uh, there's a there's a number of F-35 reports because oh, yeah, uh, yeah. the F-35 program is just the it's the perfect case study for all of the the larger systemic problems in the military industrial congressional complex. Right on, and of course you're quite active on Twitter. That's how I keep track of a lot of work that you do do, including on Twitter. You you know you put out your own reports and then you respond to reports in the news. Where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, my Twitter handle is at Dan underscore Grazier, G-R-A-Z-I-E-R. Excellent. Dan, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Michael.